Good morning, everyone. All we have needed, his hand has provided. Great is his faithfulness. Amen. In the summer of 2020, hundreds of lives were endangered on a runway just outside of Paris, France. Charles de Gaulle Airport, like a lot of international hubs, has parallel runways where runways are grouped together, pointed the same direction next to each other, but far enough away from each other so that they can be used at the same time. On this particular day, the left runway was being used for arriving aircraft as they were landing. And meanwhile, the right runway was being used for departing aircraft so they could take off. There was a Boeing 787 inbound from Newark, New Jersey that was approaching to land at the airport. Meanwhile, on the right runway, there was an aircraft, an Airbus 320 that was on its way to Malaga, Spain, and it was about to take off. There's nothing unusual about any of this, except for one small detail. The air traffic controller for the inbound flight from Newark had instructed the pilots to use the right runway. And the pilots noticed this as they were approaching the end of the runway. They quickly got in, in, in touch with the air traffic control tower and they instructed them to abort the landing to go around, but not before the two planes came within 300 feet of each other. It was a near tragedy, and the media expressed it as the air traffic controller's slip of the tongue. Don't we all know what it's like to have a slip of the tongue? Most of the time, our words aren't quite as consequential so that hundreds of people's lives are at stake. But yet, we all know what it's like to say something that we wish we could take back. We all know what it's like to say something that just wasn't quite true or wasn't quite the best way we could have said something. It turns out that God's word has a lot to say about everything that we say. And we're going to see that this morning as we open back up to the book of James. If you're joining us for the first time or maybe the first time in a while, I want to welcome you. We've been in this series in the book of James for a number of weeks now, and we're stepping into chapter 3. We'll be in verse 1 when we start in just a minute. But if we just started reading there right now, we would think that James is just introducing this topic for the first time, which would not be the case. James has actually said a lot already about our speech, our language. If we looked back at chapter 1, verse 19, for example, we would see that James instructed us this way. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to, pe slow to speak, slow to anger. It turns out that this is some radical advice about listening before we speak. But James doesn't want us to just only be listeners because just a few verses later, he will say this, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. We can become deceived if we just hear, 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 and we grow in our knowledge, but we never actually put it into practice. Our outward lives should match the faith that we profess on the inside. We need to be doers, and there's, there's nothing that we do quite as much as our speaking. From the moment we get out of bed in the morning to when we lay our head down at night, and some of you, even after you've fallen asleep, continue to speak. Speaking is something that just is unavoidable in life. So he says, be doers of the word, and our language should express the kind of things that God desires for us. 
And then just a couple of verses later, James says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So there's a religion out there that people think that they have. And James is talking about religion in the best sense of the word possible. But if we are people who do not have a bridle for our tongue, our religion is worthless. Our tongue needs a bridle if our religion is going to be worthy. So now, as we open up into chapter 3, we see that James is not introducing a new topic, but he's returning to a topic he has already introduced earlier. So this is what it says in James chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. James says this, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. There's that word again, bridle. James brought it up earlier in chapter one about bridling the tongue, and now he talks about bridling the whole body. But his first instruction is that not many should become teachers. Why would somebody want to become a teacher in the first place? A teacher presumably stands in front of people and has something to say that's worth listening to. A teacher has a platform. There can be a certain amount of authority and prestige that comes along with being a teacher. It puts you in front of people. But being a teacher also is something that the Apostle Paul says is a gift to the church. In Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12, these are a couple of places where teaching is a gift so that when God's people gather together, teaching is usually a part of that assembly, that you hear instruction from God's word. In James's day, many people were very poor. And many people were not only poor financially, but poor in their social status. Being a teacher could be a way to climb the social ladder. But like any ladder, there are some hazards involved with it. James says this, we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, he said, everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. In James's day, it was also true that a lot of people were illiterate. So a teacher was their only access to God's word. The teacher was the one who stood in front of everybody and said, thus saith the Lord. And because of that, a teacher bore a burden. The teacher had a great responsibility to not distort or misspeak in some way. The teacher was the one who represented God's word to the people. And it was a great responsibility for them. We will be judged with greater strictness. And then the next line is the zinger. For we all stumble in many ways. I don't think we have to spend a lot of time on that, do we? To think about how we all stumble in many ways. A teacher's life is supposed to conform with the words coming out of the teacher's mouth. The teacher's life should correspond to them. So if a teacher's life gets out of step with it, the teacher is stumbling. What James is showing us is that teaching is a high stakes role for stumblers like us. So because of that, we have to be careful because the teacher's role is to speak and that is the teacher's occupational hazard. So we might just think right now, well, I'll just opt out of that. I don't have any desire to be a teacher, so I'm good, right? 
Well, James is about to broaden the net of who he's talking about because he says, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Okay, so I just want to tell you, if you are here this morning and you happen to be somebody who's never regretted something that you've said, you've never misspoken, never apologized, then I have two words for you. You're dismissed. (laughs) I mean, seriously, you can just, you can go. You're going to be wasting your time listening to me this morning. Okay, everybody's left. But for the rest of us, what we see is that the tongue is something that causes us to stumble on a routine basis. And this is where James goes as we look at verse 3. He says, If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So James is talking about a beast that can easily be over a thousand pounds. An animal that has a mind of its own, a will of its own, and yet the force of the bit in the mouth, the tiny little bit, the pull of the reins is enough to direct, restrain, and guide that animal. So also the deflections of a tiny surface in the water can steer a ship one direction or the next in spite of the tumultuous waters and the harsh winds that it might face. So the connection here is what James says next. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. We could take this one of two ways. We could take this as a negative thing, thinking, yep, there the tongue goes again, just boasting arrogantly, has no basis for it. But we could also take it a different way and say, this is true. The tongue has great power and great control in a person's life. The tongue has has the potential to make a great impact in people's lives. See, the tongue might be small in its size, but it's great in its power. I bet if we didn't think too hard, we could come up with some examples in our own lives of how the tongue has made a powerful impact over us. If you think about, for example, a teacher who spoke encouraging words to you, maybe they saw some potential in your life that you didn't see in yourself, and they inspired you in a direction that ended up being a tremendous blessing in your life. Maybe a coach did something similar where they saw your potential and they challenged you to a goal that you didn't even know was possible. Maybe there's a supervisor who you worked for and the supervisor challenged you to take on a level of responsibility. And because of that, your life took a whole different direction just because of their words. In the church, we ought to be people who know the power of words. We ought to be the kind of people who speak the kind of life-affirming, life-giving words that God's word calls us to. Maybe there's been a time in our life where somebody even gave us a word of rebuke, a word of correction, and that ended up being a life-altering, life-changing direction for us. The tongue might be small in its stature, but it's great in its impact and influence. But because it is so powerful, the untamed tongue is a great problem. Let's keep reading. James says this in the second half of verse five. He says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue 
is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. I really wish we could go a different direction than this direction right here. We don't really need to be reminded about the destructive nature of a fire, do we? Fire just leaves everything in ruins, in ashes. The destruction is unlike anything else. We all know what a small little fire can do as it spreads. James says the tongue is a fire. It's a world of unrighteousness. Think of all of the ways the tongue has done damage in our own lives. Think about the examples you've seen of it in other people's lives too. How just the power of words has divided families. The power of words has divided marriages. The power of words has divided people who formerly were together and united together. And it's caused division and great destruction. Just this past week, the social media company Twitter announced that they are working on an edit feature. Up until now, you've either had to delete a tweet that you sent out or you had to follow it up, and usually you do both. You follow it up with a whoops, what I really meant to say was this. Or you say, I'm sorry that you took it that way. What I meant was this way. Why do you need an edit button? Because the tongue is a fire. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small tweet, or text, or email or careless word that we might speak. There's a world of unrighteousness that can be unleashed as this fire from the tongue is unleashed. James says next that it's set among our members, staining the whole body. Earlier in chapter one, James has said, right after he talked about the kind of religion we should avoid, he talks about pure and undefiled religion is this. It's to visit widows and orphans in their affliction, in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. But here what we see is we don't even have to leave our living room to be stained by the tongue. The tongue is something that goes with us wherever we go and offers to stain our entire body at any moment just as an impulse. The tongue is like the most impulsive part of our body. How many other actions of our body follow our words? The tongue is something that stains everything. And then it's staining the whole body, but then it sets on fire the entire course of life. This is the ripple effect that the tongue's words can have. The destructive power of the tongue in ways that we never even anticipated intended that we never could even see as a potential consequence. Here, we might think of nature in the law of cause and effect. Over 60 years ago, a man named Edward Lorenz was working as a meteorologist researcher at MIT. He was running some weather experiments, doing some forecasting, using a simulation. And he took one of the variables that was six decimal places of accuracy, and he decided to round it up to three decimal places of accuracy, to the thousandths place. He went out of the room, got a cup of coffee, and when he came back, he discovered that the results for the simulated weather were radically different than anything he had expected. 
It's what became known as the butterfly effect. Lorenz had this question that he used to help kind of describe what the butterfly effect even means. And he said, does the flap of a butterfly's wings in Brazil set off a tornado in Texas? We might ask with our own communication, does the flap of a person's mouth in Boulder set off a tornado? You know what I mean. There's the ripple effect of our words, the ripple effect of the things that we say, maybe just casually, or maybe we just say it off the cuff, but then it ripples in ways that we could never anticipate or imagine. I mean, think of a family gathering 50 years ago where one word was spoken to another member of the family that was an offense. And now all that we know is that one side of the family doesn't talk to the other side of the family and nobody knows why. It's the butterfly effect of our language. And this is the way that the whole body and the entire course of life are set on fire. But the key point here is in what James says last, because this kind of damage, this kind of devastation can only have its origin in one place. James says it's set on fire by hell. The tongue is a fire and it's set on fire by hell. Hell is the word Gehenna, which is a valley just outside of Jerusalem. It's a place where child sacrifice at one time took place. Gehenna is a place where refuse and garbage was burned. And it's associated in scripture with a place of condemnation, a place of evil, a place of judgment. And James says that it is the source of this kind of destruction. And here is a key point we cannot afford to miss. The words that we speak are far more than just sound waves traveling through the air that hit our eardrums and register as thoughts in our mind. The tongue is actually a spiritual matter, that the tongue has an origin to it. It either comes from hell or it comes from heaven. It comes from a place of death and destruction, or it comes from a place of life and vibrancy. That the words we speak are not just neutral matters in our life, but our words are fueled by a deeper source. Our words are a spiritual matter. James is going to continue down this path as we keep reading on now. Let's look at verse 7. James says, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. We could look at this just a couple of different ways. We could just say, on the surface, James is just making the point that a lot of different animals and aspects of creation have been tamed by humanity. But there's one thing that has not been tamed. But James is saying something even more significant and even deeper than this because he's going back to the book of Genesis. He's going back to Genesis 1, verse 26. And there we, we read these words. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth. This is the original mandate to humanity that God gave Adam and Eve. These are the words spoken about our own purpose in life, that we are to exercise dominion over all of God's good creation. 
that we are like God's vice regents, his local area on the ground officials representing the king of the universe. And James says that in large part, this mandate has been carried out, but that there's still a wild animal on the loose, and it's the tongue. No man has tamed the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. It's still the wild animal that has remained untamed by humanity. He says, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. We can sit here on a morning like this and we can worship God. We can lift our hands and celebrate all of the good things that our God has done for us. We can get in the car and yell at our kids on the way home. Look, I know this. I know it because I've done it. I know what it's like to bless God in one breath and then to curse another person made in God's image in the next. James has one conclusion for this. He says, my brothers, this, these things ought not to be. This is not the way God intends for us to speak. If we compare verses two and eight, we're all caught in a trap here. Because James says this in verse two. He says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, right? We already looked at this. This is what a perfect person is like. But in verse eight, he says this, no human being can do this. We're all trapped. None of us can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. James then drills down in the next verse into the source of this deadly poison. He says this, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Remember back in chapter one where James talked about the double-minded person, someone who's not sure where wisdom comes from. Here we see a double-tongued person, someone who blesses God in one breath and curses humanity in another. That person is unstable in all they do. Here we see this drilling down into the source of that double-tongued kind of nature, where he says, can a spring pour forth the same kind of water, of salt water or fresh water? Think of a spring that actually does this. It would be completely unreliable. We could never actually trust that spring to give us life. If you drink salt water, you will die. But James says that our hearts can be like that because of the fact that they are impure. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? What he's getting at here is simply that the tongue produces the kind of fruit of its source. The tongue speaks out of whatever kind that it has as its source. There's far more to our words than just the words themselves. They're actually an indicator of something going on that's much deeper than that. 
Jesus got at this in Matthew chapter 15, where we read these words from him. He says, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of a mouth, this defiles a person. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles the person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Author and pastor Paul David Tripp puts it this way. He says, there's no greater argument for your need of grace than what comes out of your mouth. This is the heart that we face. It is the heart. The heart is the the core problem of what we are dealing with. The heart is the core problem of the tongue. It's not just that our tongue is corrupt in some way, but it's that our heart is corrupt in some way. The commentator, Douglas Moo, also said that our heart is like a barometer of our spirituality. That from it we see exactly the condition of what we're seeing with our words. So you see the effect of our words is not just the impact they have on other people, but it's actually far deeper than that. It's the source that they have inside of us. You know when you go to a doctor and they ask you to stick out your tongue? I'm not a doctor, by the way, but I did look this up on the internet, so I know it's true. But they ask you to look at, they ask to look at your tongue because your tongue is an indicator of deeper problems in your body, potentially. Here, spiritually, the tongue is an indicator of deeper problems, spiritually. James had just said back up in verse 10, that my brothers, these things ought not to be. So we might ask the questions, what ought to be? We see all kinds of examples in scripture of what ought to be. I'll just give you a couple. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 15, verse 1, the writer says this, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Chapter 16, verse 24, we see gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. This is the power of our words. These are the kind of words that we ought to speak but we cannot speak them when our heart is corrupt. It's significant that we are looking this week at the events of Holy Week as we think about Palm Sunday today, but as we look ahead to think about Good Friday and we think about Easter a week from today. Because in these very events, what we see are great examples of the very thing that James has been talking about. We see examples of the blessing of men, and we see examples of cursing from men as well. Think of what was proclaimed about Christ on Palm Sunday. We read this in John chapter 12. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And then just a few days later, we hear this. Away from him, away from him, crucify him. Jesus, when he's reviled, when he's criticized, when he's rebuked, when he's misrepresented, when he's betrayed, and when he's crucified, said this, Father, forgive them, 
for they know not what they're doing. Jesus had a perfectly tame tongue because he had a perfectly pure heart. The power that Jesus had for this came out of his perfectly pure heart. And because he went to the cross and because he overcame the grave, we have a solution to our own heart. Jesus overcame the grave so that you and I would have hearts and tongues that have been tamed by his grace. Only the gospel can do this in our lives. Only the gospel has the power to bring about this kind of transformation. As we reflect this week then, let us be the kind of people who think back to those events so that we might be reminded of the gospel's transforming work in our own hearts to bring about this kind of solution, this kind of answer to the tongue. The gospel is that bridle that we need on our tongue because it puts a bridle on our heart through the transforming work of God's grace in our lives. Maybe you're here this morning and you're, you're sensing the need to talk to somebody who you've offended with your words, or you're sensing the need to forgive somebody who's hurt you with their words. Maybe that's the response that you need to have this week. Or maybe you've never experienced the transforming work of God's grace in your lives. If you don't know what that looks like, we would love to talk with you after this service. The gospel is the only hope we have, but it is the sufficient hope that we have because of all that Christ has accomplished on our behalf. That through his work, our tongues and our hearts can be tamed by his grace. Let's pray. God, we thank you and celebrate the work that you have done in our lives. God, we celebrate the fact that because of your work, Lord, that we know our words can be transformed because you are doing the deep inner work in our hearts. God, I pray that we would not try to do this in our own strength, that we would not just try to overcome our own tendencies, our own nature on our own, but God, that we would rely fervently on your grace. We know that you give it, God. So we ask for your grace to continue to penetrate our hearts and our minds. We ask, Lord, for the grace to be able to speak life-giving words. Lord, may we be people who through our words lift each other up and through those words proclaim the glory of the gospel and all that you have done. We ask this in your name. Amen. Let's stand and respond together.